Welcome to Limitless, how to crush it in commercial real estate. The show that gets you inside access to how some of retail real estate's most successful leaders went from your average Joe Schmo to the CEO. I'm your host, Aaron Zucker. Hey everyone, before we get started, I wanted to take a quick second to thank the guys at CM for making this podcast happen. They've brought Limitless from an idea to making it a reality, and I can't thank them enough for support along the way. If you're looking to get going on your own content creation journey or need help with your marketing, I'd strongly encourage you to reach out to them at kazcm.com. In Stephen Covey's famous book, The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, one of the key pillars is begin with the end in mind. Michelle Ryman with the Wendy's Corporation has done that. She's always had a vision and executed the plan in place in her mind. Everything with her career has been tactical and planned out. Those values were instilled into her from her humble beginnings in the South. We talk about everything from how she eats her Frosties to some things that are a little bit more serious, like when you know it's right to make a career change. I hope you enjoy Michelle's journey as much as I did. She has a fantastic story and has so much incredible insight to offer. So excited for Michelle Ryman to join us on Limitless today. Michelle, how's it going? It's going great. I'm equally as excited to be here, for real. Good. You have such an incredible story, and I'm excited for everybody to get to hear it and what you've been able to put together with your career and how you've executed on your plans, obviously extremely impressive. And it's easy for me to say, obviously, because I know it through and through, but the listeners are about to divulge into it with us. So as our show is formatted, we do it chronologically and I get really weird and ask you where you're from and how you grew up. So tell me about as far back as you can remember, whatever you'd like to share with us about your upbringing so we can kind of help understand how you got to be where you are today. Sure. That was kind of the fun part of, wouldn't say preparing, but thinking about our conversation because it's not something that I think about often going back to infancy, but it all began in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, which is where I was born. Then I have a sister who's about five years older than me. Our parents were divorced when I was three, and that probably led to my mom starting her career back then. She didn't have a college education. She did, I don't know that she really planned on needing one. But as her circumstances changed, without any formal education, she ultimately started her career with Xerox as an administrative assistant, a secretary. And she ended, in my early adulthood, she ended up running a team as a regional sales manager at Xerox. Oh, wow. So she was a Xerox lifer. She was. Yeah. And I don't think that I realized that that was a pretty awesome accomplishment. But of course, now I do. And I think watching her tenacity or living with her tenacity must have had a lasting impact on on me and my sister, for that matter, as we both... you know, I would say that we remain kind of heads down. Heads down, working hard, always trying to get to that next level and reach our professional goals. So yeah, I think I would credit that probably misfortune with being a lot of the way that we approach how we go about each day. I was thinking about also that you know, I really didn't have a silver spoon or I didn't inherit a network or a business, which I don't think is necessary. So I liked the opportunity to sort of share that. We were both raised with a legacy of kind of hard work and grit. And that is, I think, what persists today. We moved back and forth between Florida and Atlanta with Xerox through my mom's promotions all throughout my adolescence. So I would say I'm very much a Floridian and I'm very much a Southerner. So uh, that to thank. And I received my high school diploma at Walton High School, which is in Marietta or East Cobb, not too far from where I live now. And from there, I enrolled in the University of Georgia, Terry College of Business, earning my bachelor's in their real estate program, which... We're going to try not to hold that Georgia thing against you. As you can see... This is obviously being recorded so people aren't yeah. able to see me, but there's a roll tide sign behind my... Gotcha. It's desk. okay. But, so you said we a lot. I assume you're referencing your sister. It sounds yeah. like she's turned out okay too. What, she has. Yes. Yeah. She, Tell me about your, your relationship with her. What's she up to? We were really not that close as children or adolescents. I don't know why, but we just weren't. But late in life, I think we found a really crazy cool appreciation for one another. So she went in a different direction. She went to school in Vidal Sassoon in London, and she now owns two salons in the Northeast. So she's pretty successful herself. And now we're incredibly close. And I would say the majority of our conversations do resolve around business or what headwinds we have or things that we can consult each other or try this or have you tried that. 
So it's been an important relationship and has, again, absolutely nothing to do with this industry that I stumbled into my first year of college because I entered the business school as a freshman, selected my major, and here I am still actually working in that field, which I still find kind of bizarre, especially given my daughter is going to college now. She leaves in the last week of August. And it's kind of funny because I want to tell her, listen, just start with something, find your way, all this good stuff. You probably won't even use it, but I have a tough time finishing that sentence. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you are the exception to the rule as opposed to the rule. I want to take a step back because I think it's interesting that you knew that you wanted to study real estate as a freshman at Georgia. (laughs) I always like to ask about people's upbringing because it also it shapes who they are, but it also gives me typically as the host the opportunity to hear crazy stories about how people fell into the business. I mean, personally, my path was totally unconventional, but it sounds like you knew what you wanted. I mean, did that stem from high school? Were you a good student in high school and you learned from some sort of teacher? Not very many people go to college unless they have family in the business saying, I want to study commercial real estate. So can you kind of talk more about that? Yeah. So I was a good student in high school. I held some student council office role each year. One year, I might have been secretary. Next year, I might have been president. But I was a cheerleader. I worked really hard in high school. The one little thing that I do remember that was unique was I enrolled in ROTC program my junior and senior years of high school which I'm not sure if that was just so I could leave school early each day or if it was because <laughs> I had this burning desire to start working at the age of 15. But apparently I did, which truly actually makes me laugh now because I grew up in East Cobb and working was not a common thread amongst me and my peers. And I kind of look back and my parents you know, bought me a new car when I turned 16. And I only had to pay for my insurance and gas if my grades fell, which they didn't. So I'm not really sure <laughs> what I I look back, I have absolutely no idea why I chose to do that. But I worked just odd jobs all through high school, nothing in the real estate industry, and then carried that straight into college and worked through college. And I would say that that did benefit me because in college, just being in that specific of a major gave me opportunities while I was in college to loosely work in the field. There was a family by the name of Power at University of Georgia, Mike Power and Barbara Power, and they owned bunches of apartment complex privately, bunches of them. And I was hired as a leasing agent, if you can believe that, in college. So I kind of worked my way through college really loosely in the real estate field. But just in so doing, I think that that is what opened up so many doors for me upon graduating. I hope you understand though, you declared your major in real estate as a freshman, right? Yeah, I did. What made you do that? I was planning on going to law school. So I thought, what kind of a lawyer do I want to be? Do I want to do political science and English major? No, not so much because I might change my mind. And then what am I going to do? And so I decided that I wanted to do real estate law. That was my decided path as a freshman. So that part of my plan didn't play out exactly as I had thought it would. But it is because I, upon graduating, actually almost a year before I graduated, I got a job with Racetrack Petroleum as a real estate representative. And I thought, oh, I'll just do this for a few years, see if I like it, make a little money. And I never went back to law school, partially because I figured out that I did really like it. And then I also figured out that I appreciate and enjoy working with all the real estate attorneys that I do day in, day out, but that I didn't want to be behind a desk, that I really wanted to be out in the field and Not that they don't add shareholder value because they indirectly absolutely do. But I think I got my thrill off of adding shareholder value directly. And I think that was the impetus for essentially just bypassing the second part of my plan. Right. Right. I mean, I can understand that. Like We had Chris Ress on the show. And Chris worked, who's the chief operating officer at DLC Management, a large owner of shopping centers. And he worked at Sherwin-Williams originally as a real estate manager. And his motivating factor was to do real estate. And so if you want to do real estate, his sort of thesis was, well, if you want to do real estate, go work for a real estate company. You wanted to grow the company by adding shareholder value. Legal can preserve shareholder value, but their job is to protect the shareholder value. Whereas growing the brand at Racetrack and subsequently some of the other groups that you've been with that we're, I'm really excited to hear about, 
I could see why you were motivated to do that. It sounds like it was a great choice that's really paid off for you in spades. It so. worked out. There you go. Yeah, dumb so, luck, I call it. No, yeah. I love how you had an exact plan. You did exactly what your plan was and you call it dumb luck. That's very humble of you to say. So you accept the job before finishing school with Racetrack. You are living in Atlanta after college, right? What happens yeah. next? So you work at Racetrack. You learn what an LOI is and everything in between. So tell us about your experience there. Maybe uh, any good embarrassing deal stories. Whatever you've got for us. My embarrassing deal stories probably started at Panera. So I'll just tell you that I was a sponge. Dr. Hugh Norse was the head. He ran the real estate program at University of Georgia. He's passed. But he was a very influential person, especially in the early part of my career. So that would be just a little tidbit of advice is seek those relationships out even in college. Because believe it or not, he had a lot to do with me going to racetrack. Was racetrack the best fit for me? I don't know. Maybe it was because it was a really interesting time to learn the inner workings of a large privately held company. And I have always been a bit structured and maybe disciplined. And so it was kind of like, wow, this is interesting because we are not necessarily flying by the seat of our pants, but we're making decisions off of a lot of emotion and gut feeling. And that is not something that you have at a lot of publicly held organizations. So I think it was really, really interesting time for me. Again, I started there prior to graduating college. So I was still juggling both. Let me just get this straight. You're doing site tours and negotiating deals and then going to English literature class in between? I think I was definitely in the specialty timeframe, but... I was traveling essentially Monday through Wednesday and then driving back to Athens to do a couple of classes like on Thursdays and Fridays or something along. I don't remember all the logistics behind it, but yeah, like I said, it was really valuable at the time that I was there. I think that honestly, I didn't have quite the... I wasn't able to add enough value there. I was still just such a sponge. But then within a year of graduating, Dr. Norris called me again and said, I hate to do this. However, there is this amazing mentor that I have worked with for years and years. His name is Ben Amison. He's with the Sherwin-Williams Company. And if I could think of anybody I would want to learn from, this would be the person. And I hate to make this call for you because you haven't been at racetrack long, but I think you should go talk to him. I did. And that became my second job when I was at Sherwin-Williams for, I think, five or six years. And it was everything that Dr. Norse had promised. Working under Ben Amison, he was an amazing mentor. I actually still stay connected with him via Facebook today, which is kind of cool. He's not only an enviable negotiator, but also probably the highest integrity person I've ever worked for or with. And that left an indelible approach. I mean, truthfully, it's you only have one name, one reputation. And that got drilled into me so early on because I'm still only maybe 24 at this point. I'm still really young. So I credit that time at the Sherwin-Williams Company as really giving me the foundation of understanding that everyone will remember you forever and what you do. So... That was nice. And unfortunately, or fortunately, Ben wasn't going anywhere and he didn't. He retired from Sherwin-Williams in his position just recently in the last probably five or six years. And so I was wise not to stay there and continue to wait for that promotion. He was nice enough to recommend me to run a market research and analyst department at the Southeast Division of Sherwin-Williams. And I did that for about together is about five or six years, so maybe the last two or three years. And then at some point, it really just you know, I outgrew the organization and what my opportunity was there. And I got really lucky again with an opportunity at Quiznos. Mm-hmm. So that was, this is round three. <laughs> I call them my gigs. So my third gig was um, at Quiznos and that was my first one in restaurant. So I have not left restaurants since. So something about that stuck. And again, kind of a wildly different experience from Sherwin-Williams. It was almost, it was almost a bit more like racetrack from the fly by the seat of your pants, you're playing with emotion, you're wearing many, many, many hats. So you have all the hats and you're master of none. I think I started off there as a real estate representative or something like that. And then I pretty quickly worked my way running the Eastern half United States real estate team. Wow. And then I believe that I took over as regional development director for the Midwest, which means I had everything from operations to construction, design, real estate underneath me. 
And it was a pretty wild time. I think I started with Quiznos when they had something around 200 restaurants. Oh, wow. Looking, looking about at the year, so it would be maybe around 98, 99, if that rings any bells. And then I, and then I left them when they had a, over a thousand restaurants. So it was a pretty wild ride for three years. We were jet setting all over the place, big bonuses, all of that fun stuff. But I was getting further and further away from kind of the industry that I loved, which is real estate and development. Sure. I mean, I can't even imagine what that would have been like. Plus, that was your first experience dealing with franchisees as well, correct? It was. I say dealing with, I'm a franchisee, having the opportunity to work with franchisees. There we go. I'm going to put it that way. Yeah. And then, you know, these were onesie twosie franchisees. So that was kind of tough. I'm sure. But again, valuable experience. And definitely, I would say valuable in saying, okay, all right, well, that was a whole bunch of learning. What did I learn that I want to do next and be pretty methodical about it? And I would say that that is when Panera walked into my realm of opportunity and I jumped at that. I ended up being at Panera was a great fit for me. I was there for probably five or six years. What year was this that you went to Panera? Just to put it into context, you mean you want to talk about explosive growth? Quiznos was yeah. one. I mean, this is a different rocket ship we're talking about. So yeah, I started with Panera in 2003, and I was there for five years of their most explosive growth. So we started with 500 restaurants, and I left. They were at 1,300. Wow. So it's a good question because what I was doing was I was sort of finding that niche of entering an organization at the young stage when they were still a, a small and medium-sized company, growing it to become kind of a large brand. And then it was almost like the real value. I had sort of sucked it all out for my career at that point and was lucky enough to replicate that almost exactly again with um, Chipotle, my next one. But yeah, I think you have to have a certain level of willingness to roll up your sleeves and do the hard work and be flexible and be nimble and all of those things. But the payoff is huge. I mean, not only in stock options and things like that, but just truthfully kind of bragging rights. It's fun as well. So all this is in Atlanta? I have never physically moved my home base from Atlanta, but almost every company I work for has been based somewhere else. Sure. I'm trying to think if there's any that have been based in Atlanta. Yep. Well, Sherwin-Williams, the Southeast Division office and racetrack were both out of Atlanta. Yep. But everything since then, I've been a corporate employee in the field. In some cases, like we're going to get to kind of when I went to the elevated management levels, starting with Bloomin' Brands and Smashburger and Wendy's, where I spend a lot of time at the corporate office, but I have never physically moved my home. We're going to talk plenty about that. But just to did my best of reeling myself in, which I have the ability to <laughs> divert. I apologize to the listeners who have to put up with me, but somehow we're going to be 18 episodes into this thing when this airs. So I'm pretty pumped about that. But Panera, you get in in 2003. You're there. It's a similar role, just bigger responsibilities. Is that fair to say? Site selection, yeah. real estate. What was that? Tell us about that experience. What was that like? I mean, again, explosive growth, but it sounds like you were hyper-focused on what you wanted to do. So it sounds like it was a great marriage, right? Because Quiznos was grow, 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 which you wanted to be a part of the shareholder value in that sense. But Quiznos had you pulled in different directions operationally and construction-wise, whereas it sounds like the Panera Oil was pretty real estate-driven and you were growing and creating shareholder value. So it sounds like a good marriage, unless if I'm totally off base, you tell me. No, I think you're right. I think 2003... I think I was there for the perfect years, to be really honest. 2003 to 2008 was just a... It was the bell of the ball. That's always fun. We were putting a brand on the map. So just to give you a context, when I started with Panera, it was still called St. Louis Bread Company. So Aubon, Ron Shake, who had owned Aubon Pan, they had purchased St. Louis Bread Company right at that year. They were spinning off Aubon Pan and then changing the name of St. Louis Bread Company to Panera to take it national because we were starting to experience some headwinds with acceptance outside of the Midwest. So it was putting a brand on the map in the Southeast and in Florida. I did all the first Panera rollout in Florida, in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, It was truly creating a brand in the Southeast. So lots of hard work because they were like, who? What? I remember my first meeting with a... Hard to fathom in today's environment. I hate to laugh at what you're saying. It's just crazy to think that like, what's Panera bread? What is that? That's... Continue your thought. I apologize. No, no, you're good. I had to explain that so many times. In fact, 
What was interesting is that I don't know Spanish, but I was in a meeting with someone at DDR for a really fancy project in West Palm Beach. And I was trying to pitch them on, uh, God, a lot of put Panera Bread in there. They were like, it just doesn't make sense to me because Panera is the Spanish word for a, a bushel of bread. So they were like, a bushel of bread, bread. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, huh. Okay. But we had to do all kinds of funny things, interesting things to evolve the brand to actually appeal to the Southeast and then obviously appeal to Florida, which is, you know, in some ways, South Florida operates like a different country. So it was fun to be part of the creation of that brand. I did the actual very first Panera drive-thru. It was in uh, Hendersonville, Tennessee. That's a fun fact. That's like a cool, like, tell me something about you I wouldn't know. And we, of course, were like, when it was all done, the first one, we were like, oh, they make no money. They're too big. You can't run it operationally and look where you are today. So being willing to have the failures and learn from them was pretty cool. I got to tell you, I look back, I drive every single, whether it's racetrack, whether it's Sherwin Williams, whether it's Panera, whether it's anything else that I haven't gotten to yet. I still look at it and I think of all the learnings and all the things and all the failures and all the obstacles that were overcome. So that's kind of a lucky thing about this career path. Yeah, that's amazing. So what happened next? So Mike Willingham, who was the headhunter that called me about Panera, called me about another new brand. It was called Chipotle. Oh, heard of that one. I know. Have you heard of it? Yeah. (laughs) This is 2008. Chipotle was really struggling in the Southeast. They had no presence in the Southeast really whatsoever. Moe's was the bell of the ball. You know, they didn't have cheese dip, which was like, why? You know? Well, no wonder they weren't <laughs> making it in the South. We like our cheese down here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, again, you got to just put your head down and just flip and work. It's super hard. It is really, really hard. I think the AUV, I probably will get in trouble for this, but I don't work for them anymore. So they can't fire me. But I think when I started with Chipotle, the AUV in Atlanta was something silly low, like one one per wow. unit. AUV meaning rest, average. Yeah, for those who are looking to break in the industry and don't know that AUV meaning average unit volume. So what the average store sales are doing. Yeah. To put into context, Chipotle, it's not uncommon for them to easily double that number today with right. their Chipotle concept. And Michelle's going to tell you about all the incredible works that she did. So I can shut up now. But that's what she <laughs> meant when she said AUV. And 1.1, it's crazy because if you look at their stock <laughs> price right now, there's no way they're only doing 1.1 one a store uh, just based on how, how well the stock's performed over the last few years. So, their trajectory has been amazing since I left. So I was only there for five years of it. But in that almost five years, which was 2006 to 2011, I think, we grew from company-wide. We grew from 700 restaurants to over 1,200. And the AUV in Atlanta had grown from 1.1 to 2.0. So you just think about having about 30 restaurants, the impact of that. That was fun. What was more important, significant about my time at Chipotle was I left with a kind of a professional family of really kind of an intense level. We were all super, super connected. Not only, I think, because of the food with integrity movement and the desire to help make the world a better place and treating animals humanely and getting organic food into everyday life. There certainly are threads of all that stuff. But we were so impassioned about the work we were doing in real estate together that it was just a really close-knit group. I think that's part of the magic of Chipotle. And I think they still have it today. Maybe not quite to that extent. Again, going from a small to medium-sized company to being a huge brand, there's a lot that happens in between there. A lot of layers get added. A lot of people get added. So the connection points get a little less intense. But I think Chipotle was... It definitely taught me sort of that commitment to one another and to team and to doing things for the common good. And that's been a nice thread that I think will stick with me forever. That's awesome. One thing that I take away from your experience at Chipotle is you were there during the height of the recession. When you got there, it was boom time in 2006 and 2007. I mean, you had a three-year stretch from 08 to 11 where... The world was upside down. Yeah. No other way to put it. And I'm really glad that you shared your experience at Chipotle with me and by virtue of sharing it with me with the whole listening base. You could have been in freak out mode and said, I need to go do something else or switch industries or whatever because your job was to grow a retailer in a recession. And most people would have been like, oh, run away from that. And 
you excelled in it and you took advantage of the opportunities that were out there. You were probably able to identify and get real estate sites that, and the economics, especially in a hot market like today, are laughable. But you probably did very well at that time. And so I think it's worth pointing out to somebody who may buy into the general consensus of, oh, it's a tough market right now. I can't make uh, a name for myself or a splash. Like You clearly took advantage of that. And Chipotle as a brand clearly took advantage of that. So like, I guess what I would say is the big takeaway for me is like there's no room for like getting down in the dumps when something that's out of your control is a little frustrating. Like, so what? The market's hot or the market's cold or whatever. Go do your thing. If you've got a job to do, just go do it better than other people. And your team at Chipotle did that. And obviously, you were a huge part of that. I mean, I think about I've lived everywhere in the Southeast, basically. I've lived in Charlotte, Alabama, where I went to school. I lived in Atlanta, I lived in South Florida. And I think about the Chipotle locations that have been around for some time. And obviously, some of them that you did were pre-Chipotle, but still, I mean, they're incredible, iconic sites that you just rolled up your sleeves and dug up and got. So kudos to you for taking advantage of what should have been a challenging time. And I'm sure it was in its own right, but incredible work. That's awesome. And I really appreciate the fact that you shared that part of your story with us. I'm pretty sure I was freaking out though. Just kidding. <laughs> That's okay. I mean, look, look, for what it's worth, I mean, last year... 2020, height of the pandemic. I'm going to be selfish and talk about myself for 30 seconds, but the pandemic, I went around town saying, This is major buying mode. This is the recession I've been waiting for. And like behind the scenes in my head, I'm like, I'm scared shitless, thinking, like, I hope this is going to work because I'm all in. Like, we're yeah. pushing all the chips into the middle of the table. And fortunately, we had some great acquisitions at that time, but you know, just a function of stepping outside comfort zones. And you clearly did that. I think it should be applauded and recognized on the show for sure. So, Thank you. Yeah, of course. Maybe that's the downside of that really clear direction in college and not taking off the blinders and just moving forward is that I don't even think I would have known what to do. I would have been like, hmm, okay. So I know nothing else. <laughs> no, that's okay. Oh, yeah. That just shows a level of commitment. So you crush it at Chipotle. You're there. Things are going great. What happens next? It was similar to Sherwin-Williams in that as much as I loved everything that I've already shared, especially the, the team there, just insane. I think of not only mentors, but like Chipotle was more about just, you know, I think about what's that game show, Use a Lifeline and Phone a Friend. Oh, think, who wants to be a millionaire? Yeah, exactly. So I think about the number of times since then that I phoned a friend and I phoned somebody from um, Chipotle. So definitely served an amazing purpose, but it became clear that there was really nowhere to go within the organization upward certainly laterally and I would have been fulfilled. But just knowing myself, I knew that I needed to consider something else. So once again, the same headhunter, which I kind of laughed when I was thinking about this for this call, I was like, wow, that guy owes me a really nice Christmas gift. I don't think I ever got that. But the headhunter called me again about Bloom and Brands. And this one was an interesting one. This is probably where the story gets really interesting. So to your point, I'm almost five years in at Chipotle. I love it. I'm doing great things. I'm at the time, I think my, right before I left, I might have had like 32 openings that year. So things were really good. I was in a good spot. Great team. The fit was amazing. Having a lot of fun, super important. But Mike calls me and says, I've got an opportunity for me, but this one comes from a historical uh, relationship. Mike Nolan, who was the chief development officer at Panera while I was there, had just accepted a role as chief development officer at Bloomin' Brands. For those who don't know, Bloomin' Brands at the time operated, owned and operated five concepts. So less known was Roy's, which we sold during my time there. Outback would be the, probably the original brand. Bloomin' Brands Car for the Bloomin' Onion. There you go. Carabas, Bonefish Grill was our new concept back then. And then Fleming's. So, he had accepted a role to leave Panera and be the chief development officer of all five brands. And he was building a new team of real estate directors in that effort. And he asked if I would be willing to come. It was the first time that I'd had someone at that level kind of want to take me along. It was a huge compliment. And after a lot of really, really, really tough decision and many, many conversations, both at Chipotle and elsewhere in my family, I did make the decision to go to Bloomin' Brands. And I'll tell you, I just dripped way out of my comfort zone. So not only was it casual dining, but going from one concept to five was a bit of a, a head spinner for me. So I intentionally went way outside of my comfort zone. And it worked out. I'll tell you what, maybe not in the classic way. So 90 days after I started, Mike Nolan unexpectedly left. Oh boy. 
I know. <laughs> yeah. I was like, huh. Okay. Well, this is interesting. Well, I just based my life decision around a recommendation from someone who's gone 90 days later. Yeah. If you're listening to this show, I really wish that you guys could see Michelle's face as she's telling this part of the story. <laughs> she, the uh, she took uh, obviously a stressful time in your life. By the way, it's still 2011, right? Okay. Let's is it right? See. Is yeah. it still 2011? Give or I take. I think it is. 2011. Okay, so, so it's the height of a recession. You jump completely outside your comfort zone by taking on five brands in casual dining as opposed to one brand in fast casual with more responsibility. And you're doing it predicated on following a leader. And the leader leaves 90 days later. Mm-hmm. That's a curveball. It was a curveball. And what made it even worse was then they brought in a new chief development officer. His name is Suk Singh. And Suk Singh came to Bloom and Brands from Darden, which there's nothing wrong with that other than the fact that as we're all meeting him for the first time, I realized that I was the only one meeting him for the first time. Oh, Everyone else had worked for him before. I was like, huh. Well, this- <laughs> This has been an incredible experience for 90 days. <laughs> so, so, so I'm glad we're laughing, by the way. So, I mean, I have to ask, is your first thought like, this might have been a temporary job? Yeah. My first thought is that... So combine that with the fact that all of a sudden, all the pressures for casual dining are happening. So it was probably not very good timing for me. I think I considered that, but I was so excited about having a team and doing multi-brand and stepping outside of my comfort zone, but the pressures for casual dining were continuing to tighten, essentially. Mm-hmm. So again, Mike Nolan leaves the person who knows my work and, and I felt like I would have time to learn. That person is now gone. In walks Sook Singh, who's just an incredible mind and quite intimidating, I might add. And I mean, his I, name is Sook Singh. It, the word intimidating popped into yeah. my head naturally without even knowing who this yes. person is, what they look like, like what yeah. the story was. Look up a picture. No, I'm just kidding. He's a really good guy, but but I didn't know that at the time. You know what, Aaron? It was I got to put my head down and I've got to work harder than I've ever worked before to prove myself to this person. And um, he brought in Annette Rodriguez, who is someone who he trusted to sort of you know, operate as VP and keep. Well, they had a lot of tough decisions to make, frankly, and there were a lot of layoffs. I want to say within three or four months, don't quote me, that maybe they might have laid off like 40% of the development team. It was an uncomfortable time. And in order to... I just knew that I had to prove myself. And I didn't have a lot of time to do that. So... Oh, so you were not included in the layoffs. You made it through. There was not a FIFO approach, as the accountants like to say, first in, first out. Or or I guess it would have been LIFO, last in, first out. Yeah. Good thing I'm not a CPA. I... (laughs) I did make it through and there, you know, I saw a lot, a lot of good friends um, leave and it was such a hard assignment, I think is what I'll say. I was trying to catch up on just one casual brand, then add to that the complexity of it going backwards and then add the complexity. Oh, wait, and there's three more because at that point we had sold Roy's. So yeah, I call it my Sook Singh PhD and he laughs and I learned so much from Sook and Annette, truthfully. I think I learned I learned discipline, self-discipline. You have to really think through what you do and the work you're delivering. Don't just check the boxes. Think through it and produce really quality work. And it worked out for about three years. I was at Bloom and Brands total. Mm-hmm. And uh, in three months. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's a whole lot better. Exactly. And then that same headhunter, Mike Willingham. Again, Mike, I don't know if you're listening to this. <laughs> Michelle, I'd appreciate it if you'd send this, but you're getting the plug of the millennium. You know, I know with, he is. With all seven people who will hear this one day. But I think you so, know our, our friend Michelle a drink. You said his name's Mike, right? His and name Mike, is Mike. And he's made a uh, career he, off of you. Well, I don't know. I'm one of many. He's a trusted advisor, but he gave me a call and he said, okay, I can't tell you everything yet, but the band's getting back together, would you have an interest? And and truthfully, I would have loved to have stayed working with the team at Bloom and Brands and with Sook and Annette. But this was the first time that I had been given to have a VP role running half of the country for a, you know, a real estate organization. And that in itself was just too good of an opportunity. There were other, some interesting threads also because when the company did come out, it was Smashburger who was founded by Rick Shadden, who was, had also founded Quiznos. So I had a little bit of a comfort with the senior leadership of that organization. 
And I made that leap. And I was actually looking forward to getting back into QSR. I do think I figured out that dealing with the market share, the pie getting smaller and smaller, while it's an important job, it was not as fun as growth. And of course, growth is just... Growth is fun. Yeah. So I took that risk. And I knew at the time that I entered that role, the position was negotiated such that this very real risk was accounted for. But the organization Smashburger had just facilitated taking in a minority owner, which was Jollibee. It's the largest Filipino-based fast food company. Okay. And so at the end of six months, essentially, we completed where they became the majority owner and they sort of dismantled the development team. So that was a very short assignment. And I might have been upset about it, but had I not done that, I wouldn't have been in the right place and time and space to consider Wendy's, which is obviously where I am now. Real quick, when did you pivot from Bloomin' to Smashburger? Hmm, gosh, really not thinking about years right now. But so if I started with Bloomin' in 2011, I probably left there in about 2014. Yeah, so it would have been really only about five years ago. Okay, so the foregone conclusion that Fast casual is probably more sustainable than casual dining. Wasn't necessarily written all over the wall like it is, especially as it's been heightened and expedited with the pandemic. Right. Another kudos to you for having the foresight to see that and realize that. Obviously, the Smashburger thing didn't work out as planned, but it always does if you do the right thing, work hard, and follow the right trends, which going back to QSR has obviously paid off for you. And it sets you up for the Wendy's gig, which... Now we get to hear about all the yeah. awesome stuff that you're up to there. Yeah. So I got a phone call, but the timing was just perfect. I got a phone call from a friend who's here in Atlanta. Her name is Ashley Sperling. And she had been a real estate director for Wendy's for close to 10 years at that point. And she's like, look, there's an opportunity coming up. It's for a real estate director role. I'm not sure if you'd be interested, but you just need to come talk to us. She just sang the praises of this amazing culture of this Midwest-based Wendy's company. And I'm thinking, well, I would like a little stability. I would look for a brand that has already weathered many volatile moments. And obviously, QSR, to your point, was definitely at that point a goal and staying with QSR. And I also was looking for growth. And so I think that was where I, at the time, wasn't really sure of Wendy's growth trajectory. I've now been... We're talking about... Yeah, four or five years ago. Four years ago. So I did come in an interview. I did accept a position as a real estate director. And I'm lucky enough now to run the East US real estate team. And that kind of came to fruition inside of a year of me joining Wendy's company. Wow. And the beauty of that is that everything that Ashley promised is true. It's a legacy company with a Midwest culture. We do the right thing. Dave's legacy lives on. And I remember at first showing up and seeing the quotes all over the halls because they have a campus that rivals Chick-fil-A's campus here in Atlanta, but it's ours is in Dublin, Ohio. And I remember thinking, okay, these are really nice, cute sayings, but actually people use the sayings all the time. So we definitely do the right thing. Quality is in everything that we do. And that doesn't have any limitations. I think that the interesting thing is that while... Dave certainly left this awesome legacy for us all to live by. He had a, a lot of things. And so things like profit is not a dirty word. We have some common threads of excellence and growth and building the brand the right way. And I think that's super appealing to me. I realize that I've said the words multiple times since we've been talking, Aaron, but I really do like the rolling up your sleeves and figuring it out. It's a puzzle. There's something that needs an unlock. There's something that needs to be fixed or exposed or influenced. And you have to figure out what that is to create that difference. And that's where that shareholder value comes in. I think when I was concerned about joining Wendy's, I was thinking, oh, wow, I don't know if there'll be that opportunity because it's full of these employees that have been there 28 years. And it's full of 50 years of history and it's already had its big growth moment. Now, how can I make a difference? How can I do something? And I'm so glad that I opened myself up to the opportunity and was lucky enough to earn a role on it because the senior leadership team at Wendy's is truly inspiring. And 
the growth that we have at Wendy's is incredibly similar to the growth that I've already talked about of while I was at Quiznos and while I was at Panera, while I was at Chipotle. Last year in 2020, mm-hmm. and you already stated, you know, it's a time when you know, it was high uncertainty. We opened up 147 restaurants. Wow. That wasn't planned. That wasn't pipeline. That's what we actually accomplished. So yeah, it's been a wild, fun, amazing ride. And I do think that at times of uncertainty and the headwinds that have come to the rest of the retail sector and dining sector have quite honestly played in our favor. Having that those really deeply entrenched employees and relationships with landlords. Think about that. So you look at what a lot of people had to do during that time frame, which was go in and renegotiate leases and ask for deferrals. We did all of that, by the way. Our team did. And we had to pivot. And in addition to opening 140 restaurants, we renegotiated our leases. And this is where the difference came for us, I think, from some of my peers that I talked to. While it was challenging work and it wasn't necessarily fun work, We did not renegotiate to get out of anything. All we did was seek a deferral during that height of the uncertainty. And I had some of those conversations with landlords that we've had as landlords for 50 years. And they were actually really mostly easy conversations. It's that legacy. It's that history. It's doing the right thing as a brand that really bought us a lot of good during that time. Yeah. Unbelievable. So, I mean, I can just tell you seem like you're enjoying every minute of it. And obviously, it has its challenges like renegotiating leases. What does your future look like at Wendy's? And by the way, I appreciate you mentioning that the brand is growing. I mean, you think about Panera in 03 to 08 and Chipotle, or I guess what I forget the dates, but the point is you think about these hyper growth brands. And and then you think about brands like Wendy's being as quote unquote mature. That could be the notion on the street, but are you guys still opening and growing? And What's sort of that look like as far as your future and what the next couple of months and years look like in your role? Yeah. Thanks for asking because I do like to share what it still feels like people don't fully appreciate, but I guess it's all in perspective, right? So I talk about some of those other brands where we started with 300 or 400 and I was there for 5 years and we doubled the size. So we're a restaurant brand of 6,700 restaurants. So we're a really large organization and that's globally. 5,800 of those are, you know, over 5,800 in the United States. So perspective-wise or percent-wise, it's not that significant. But the team is still producing a team that's pretty comparable size to all the organizations that we discussed. We're still growing 150 restaurants a year and accelerating. So I think it was earlier this year that GP, our CFO, in a... Earnings call? Yeah, thank you. I was trying to think of the right thing. So yes, an earnings call, he shared that we would be at 8,000 restaurants by 2025. We're all like, what? I think he said it jokingly, but I'm not really sure that the CFO, he's not like a super funny guy. So uh, we were all like, okay. So you know what? We literally, from the minute that he said it, which was in first quarter of this year, we're like, okay, so how are we going to do that now? And we again, you roll up your sleeves, you sit down, you dissect it apart and you say, okay, we're clearly not going to do it exactly the way we've been doing, right? Because we would have to change not just one thing. We're probably going to change a lot of things to get there. So we're heightening up non-traditional. We're really super focused on figuring out dark kitchens, on figuring out smaller formats. Oh, wow. We're pulling every lever we possibly can. So we opened up our first UK restaurant in May or June. So we're going in many, many other countries. We're going in with many different formats. So in addition to the good old-fashioned traditional US growth, we are looking at... It's really every growth channel we can possibly look at. And here's the cool thing. We have a senior leadership team and we respect each other. Everybody respects everyone that's doing their job to do it. And we're fully committed. I would be shocked if we didn't achieve it. I would be really, really shocked. We have a plan and we're working the plan. And it is a lofty growth metric. But 8,000 by 2025, here we come. There you go. I'll be your biggest cheerleader on the sideline. That's awesome. Maybe we'll get a deal done. Who knows? So incredible stuff going on there. Thank you for your perspective. As I do with all the other guests, you don't get to avoid it. You have to answer weird, awkward, crazy, superlative questions. Some of which I'm going to ask are are unique to you even. 
Okay. And there's a notion in our business that people, and you even alluded to it when you were considering and ultimately decided to pull the trigger on switching from racetrack to Sherwin Williams. And there's a notion in the business that you're, and maybe it's more of a old school mentality of you've got to stay in the same job forever and ever. You've obviously made switches. I assume that based on what I've heard today, it doesn't sound like you ever made a bad one, which is awesome because you're probably in the minority on that. But talk about that dynamic and when you know it's right to make a transition because we have a ton of listeners out there that are considering career switches. And you know, I was talking to someone who's doing brokerage right now who was considering going to work in-house with a retailer recently. And she was wondering what I thought about that. And I just think with somebody who's made a lot of really good career decisions, kind of talk about that dynamic, what goes through your head and how you process when every time Mike calls (laughs) or has called in the past, what ultimately leads you to making a decision to pivot or, or not? I'm sure you've turned down many a job in the past as well. Yeah. I think it comes down to two things. I think it's, do I have anything else to give here? I mean, obviously, you can continue to do your job and perform. So that's not really what I mean. But am I able to contribute wildly or audaciously? And if you're not, it might be because you've reached a place where what you have to bring to an organization has been fully utilized, fully usurped. And then the other piece, I think, is the opposite of the spectrum is, do I have anything else to learn here? So am I at a place that I'm going to be able to continue to learn? And that's what goes to the things like the casual dining segment. So love the people I work with there. I was still learning from them, but I knew that the segment, or I should say, I had a feeling that the segment was going to continue. The pie was going to continue to get smaller. I didn't know about COVID at the time, but it just had seemed that the segment was getting smaller. And I thought, gosh, how am I going to grow my role and eventually manage a team when the pie keeps getting smaller. So I think it's twofold. Do I have anything else to give? And is there anywhere else that I can go in this organization? If not, I think it's time to move on. I've never looked for a job. So been pretty lucky that way. Why would you? You got Mike. Yeah, I know, really. <laughs> you know, it just, so I touched base with him today. And if you ever listen to this, he'll laugh. I was like, wait, did you also take me to Chipotle? We were trying to go back and forth to figure it out. But yeah, so... I think the reason that those opportunities came my way is by always staying, again, heads down, work your butt off while you're there, add discipline and value and continually remember how can I elevate or explode or accelerate adding shareholder value in this role that I have. When you get to that point where it's like, yeah, I can't think of anything else to do. I can't think of anywhere else to go. If you're still desiring career growth at that point, I think you have to take those phone calls when they come in. Sure. I can also appreciate the fact that you weren't going to let uncertainty and what could have been fear of failure get in the way of making what ended up being really strategic career decisions. So thank you for those words of wisdom. I assume you have weaknesses. I haven't figured out what they are in an hour of talking to you, but what are they and how do you navigate them? Oh, gosh. So I think that everybody has weaknesses, obviously, including me. I'll tell you that I had a leader that was at Wendy's, no longer anymore. And he encouraged for me to read a book. And I now pretty sure that he did that with great intention, although he certainly did not allude to that. But it's a book is called Great at Work. And it influenced so much of the way that I changed the way that I approached my job each day. I was really, prior to that, trying to do everything. I was trying to multitask. And what that book and his words and watching him and emulating him made me realize is that don't multitask because everyone gets average output. Don't try to tour a market in record time while you're taking three conference calls. Because you know what? We've all been on the other end of those conversations, right? The person's asking you to repeat themselves or "Uh uh-huh. They're repeating the same thing that's already been said. I think I learned self-discipline through that. And I think he was telling me that with great intention. Like, don't try to do everything. Try to really focus your energy in the right place. I have taken that kind of and extrapolated it really far. So it's do less than obsess. And I'd say it probably guides the majority of what I do and how I work with my team now. Let's Uber engage as opposed to trying to touch everything. And so I mentioned that because you asked, what are my weaknesses? I would say up until five years ago... I hadn't really gotten that. I was still trying to touch everything. And now I'm very deliberate about what I do or I try to be deliberate about what I do. 
So recently, another leader that's current at the organization, it's actually the person I report to, so he'll know if he ever listens to this. He was like, yeah, you should really ask more questions and listen a little more. And again, it was not an insult. And I think that's my takeaway is that we all continually need to evolve. We all continually need to learn. And you just need to listen when people are giving you feedback because for the most part, people give you feedback. That's the people who are brave enough to give you feedback and do it so in a genuine way are doing it for your benefit. So weaknesses. I would say that I try to do too much and I'm working on that, have been working on that. I don't just talk about it. I actually do classes and books and talk to others and ask for feedback on a continual basis. But now I'm super focused on how do I listen more to the people around me, ask more questions and let them lead. So I'm really glad that you mentioned books because now I'm going to really put you on the spot. What's one book that changed your life? I think it's the one I already mentioned. Great at work. I think that's where I upped my game. Okay. That's on my list. I just jotted it down. And and by the way, we post these on our website, zuckerinvestmentgroup.com on the podcast link. Not only do we post the episodes there, but we post all the book recommendations. So if you're ever looking for a good book to read, Michelle's, you can see what the other guests have written. Or I guess they didn't write the books, but we put on there what the guests have indicated that they've liked. And obviously, your recommendation will go on there too. So pretty pumped about that. And thank you. I'm going to read it, by the way. Good. Okay. This one's really tough. And it's going to put you on the spot. Uh-oh. You ready? I think so. Let me take Do a sip think... of water. Yeah. Get some water. Gear up for this one. Do you think it's weird when people dip French fries in their frosty? <laughs> Oh gosh. So yeah, no, I don't. I mean, I do, but I don't. It is a thing. It is a true thing. Personal question. Do you dip your French fries in Frosties? The world wants to know. I do not. I do not. But the number one and number two items delivered by a delivery driver are French fries and Frosty, which I think is so interesting considering that the fries are probably not hot anymore and the Frosty is probably not that cold anymore. (laughs) Well, By the time it reaches your door. I guarantee you and take this with a grain of salt. I work for myself so I can say what I want and if, even if it's stupid. But I bet you that's really the case in Colorado, Massachusetts, <laughs> California. Oh, oh yeah. The oh, yeah. yeah. There we go. Yeah. On an actually more serious note, listen, French fries and Frosties, that's a big thing. But this <laughs> one's pretty real too. You've obviously accomplished a ton. You're very driven. You'll continue to accomplish a ton for however long you decide to do this. But at some point, you're not going to be in the business anymore. You're going to finally take a break and go hang out on a beach or whatever it may be. Beach. Beach? Okay. Meet you there. When you do decide to do that, ICSE or the comparable publications at that particular point in time are going to put out an article about your decision to leave the business to hang out on a beach. When they write that article... What do you want it to say about you? What do you want your legacy to be like in this business? Hmm. Well, I don't think that I will have invented electricity or anything that interesting to write about, but I would say that I would like to leave a legacy of someone that lives the motto that you can do it all. It can all be done really well and you can have a lot of fun doing it. I love that answer. I love that answer. Great way to end the show. I, on behalf of everybody who will listen to this, can't thank you enough for spending time with me. This was great. And the real estate business is better by virtue of you being in it. And when you're cruising around the Southeast and you've seen an emerging brand restaurant concept, there's a decent chance that Michelle put them there. So you have her to thank for it. So the least you could do is connect with her. And thank you again, Michelle, for spending time with us. Really much. It was fun. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Limitless, how to crush it in commercial real estate. I hope you were able to extract one piece of value out of today's episode. That's my only goal. If you did in fact get some value out of it, let me know via LinkedIn, Instagram, or through a review wherever you get your podcasts.